Welcome to Good Friday, and um, we just really believe that uh, the Lord is going to do some miraculous things here this evening. I've already had a conversation with a number of people that have had um, on, on this evening, on an, in previous years, uh, have just been touched and transformed, saved, uh, given their life to Christ on Good Friday, and we just really believe that the Lord is just going to open up the floodgates of heaven and just minister and to touch his people here this evening. Um, Good Friday is really special to me. Uh, a number of years ago when I was in uh, seminary, I worked at a liturgical church, and I wasn't crazy about liturgy. I wasn't crazy about Good Friday. I loved resurrection. I wasn't crazy about Monday, Thursday. just couldn't figure out why we were going through all of this. Why can't we just get to resurrection? Why do we have to go through Good Friday? And uh, so, but it was, it was the fourth year that I was working there that, uh, man, it was on Good Friday where I just felt like this, this sorrow really uh, moved emotionally, recognizing in a deeper way than I've ever had before, uh, just the crucifixion and just the extravagant love of the Father to send the Son, the extravagant love of the Son to die on the cross for us. I just weepy throughout the day. The youth had to put together a Good Friday service that night, and I just, I could barely stand up to, to say anything, just wrecked completely uh, over the power of the cross, the power of the cross. And then I remember walking in on, good, uh, on Resurrection Sunday and just the, you know, everything was just pulled back. The light was coming through the glass and seeing Christ the Lord is risen today. And on Good Friday, I just was weeping throughout that day. And on Resurrection Sunday, I was just weeping throughout the day. And after that experience, I went away and just asked the Lord, why was that so significant? Why was it so meaningful? And I felt like the Lord said, because you entered into the power and the meaning and the significance of Good Friday that you're able to understand the glory of the resurrection. So as much as we want to go to Resurrection Sunday, we can't get to Resurrection Sunday except through the cross of Good Friday. So that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Why is Good Friday so important? What is Good Friday? And how do we respond? How do we enter into this day? And as we look at Luke chapter 23, why is Good Friday? We're going to hear through the words of the crowds why Good Friday is so important from the words of Jesus, what is Good Friday? From the words of the second criminal, how do we enter into Good Friday? First, why do we need, to, why do we need Good Friday? In fact, let's, before we even jump into the scriptures, let's just take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, come and inhabit the praises of your people. We will not boast in anything. We will not boast in gifts, powers, or earthly wisdom. We will only boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, come, lift our eyes up to you. You are lifted up, and you draw all people who believe in you, Christ, to yourself. So Lord, may it be so this evening. Transform our hearts, touch us, renew us, we pray. Amen. Why is Good Friday so essential? And we hear it in the words of the crowds. Uh, if you have your scriptures, Luke 23, verses 18 through 23. Why do we need Good Friday? The whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has he, this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with a loud shout, they incessantly demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. 
So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. It was the crowds that were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And I did a little research on crowd psychology, read a book by um, Gustav Le Bon, a fascinating book. And he talks about when you just have a, a conglomeration of people, you don't necessarily have a crowd. They're just individuals that are gathering together, a collection of individuals. But as soon as they begin to rally around a single point, then it becomes a crowd. And um, if you have a single purpose for the crowd, the, the intensity continues to increase all the more. And oftentimes when you had a, a crowd, you, judgment and reason begin to get lowered. You know, for example, you might go to a concert and when, uh, you know, everybody's in kind of their different places, but as soon as somebody says from the front, you know, how are you doing, Denver? Everybody goes, we're awesome. You know, that's crowd psychology. Now, you may have had a miserable day, like the entire day, but as soon as the person up front says, how's your day? We're awesome. You know, everything begins to shift. And you would do something at concerts that you would never do in real life. Why? Because judgment and reason gets lowered. And this is the crowd that had heard the prophecies of Jesus. They had heard Isaiah 53. They had heard Psalm 22 that was read last night. They knew that the Messiah had to suffer and to die. And yet, the reason was lowered. And they just went along with the crowd. The crowd cried out, crucify him, crucify him. He does not meet the credentials that we want. He does not fit the, the job description of what a Messiah is supposed to do. A Messiah is supposed to liberate us from the bondage of the Roman Empire. The Messiah is supposed to give us a better life than what we're experiencing now. The Messiah is supposed to live up to our expectations of what the Messiah is supposed to do. And he's not doing it, so cru uh, crucify him. And there's power in the crowds. The psychology says that they just get hypnotized, galvanized around a single message. And that message is crucify him. But it's not just the crowds, it's also the religious leaders, because in verse 35, the crowd stood watching. The rulers, that is the religious leaders, even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Now, that's a direct quote out of Isaiah 42. If he is the Messiah, then he's going to save himself, and he's going to save us, if. Because it doesn't make sense for God to die on a cross, because Deuteronomy 21 says... Cursed are, is the person that dies on a cross. And what they missed is, is that he wasn't dying for his sins because he didn't have sins. Jesus was dying for their sins. He became a curse because they were cursed so that they could receive the righteousness of God. He wasn't, he wouldn't, have, he, he didn't come to the cross to save himself. He came to the cross to save us. And they missed Jesus completely. Why? If you are the son of God, you will save yourself. If you are the son of God, you will save us. You need to fit into our agenda, not God's. The soldiers also reject him. In first, uh, verse 36, the soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, the historians say that... Um, the sponge was used for two purposes. One was first century toilet paper for the elite. The second purpose for the sponge was it was placed in the soldier's helmet to absorb the sweat so that the perspiration wouldn't come down into their eyes. Regardless of where the sponge came from, it was disgusting. The sponge was used to mock Jesus. If you are the son of man, 
you will save yourself. If you are the son of God, you'll save us. If. And it wasn't just the crowd, the religious leaders and the soldiers, it was also the first criminal. In verse 39, he says the same thing. One of the criminals, the first criminal, who hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The four groups miss Jesus for the exact same reason. And it's the exact same reason that people miss Jesus today. It's because we want to make God into our own image. We want to see, we want to see God, we want to see Jesus not as an end, but as a means to an end. If you are the Son of God, you will save yourself. If you are the Son of God, then you will save us. If, in other words, there's a condition here, and the condition is based upon what you ought to do for me, based upon my pleasures, what I think. In other words, what we want is a God that is omnipotent, all-powerful, but no smarter than us. We want a great big God with a little tiny brain. (laughs) That's what we want. And Jesus will have none of it. And that is the essence of sin, is when we try to form God into our own image. I will surrender my life to you, God, if. I will give sacrificially to God, if. I will serve you, God, with all of my days, if. If you give me the life I want, if you give me the circumstances that I want, if you fulfill the desires that I have, if you check all the boxes that what I think of of as a great life, if you do all of these things, then, God, I will serve you. But it's all based upon conditions, which means that the essence of sin is placing our life at the center and God at the peripheral. And all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, the big problem was is that the gods, the idols, keep, kept cre- creeping into the center of Israel's worship. And the prophets came along and said, you, gotta take your, you have to take your aspirations, your desires out of the center, and you've got to put Yahweh at the center. You can't put yourself at the center. That's idolatry. But that's the essence of sin, is putting us at the center, our thoughts, our ways, our expectations of who God should be, God at the center. David Foster, I'm sorry, ourself at the center. That's the essence of sin. David Foster Wallace says, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. It is the sovereignty of self. The reference point for all of life is me, not God. And we think that by putting us at the center, we will experience freedom, peace, and joy, but just the opposite takes place. As soon as we take God out of the center, that's when our life begins to get unraveled and our soul begins to decay because we have removed ourselves from the very life source. Jeff Cook says, the more I make my life, my well-being, my enlightenment, and my success primary, the farther I step from reality. Thus, the hell-bound do not travel downward, they travel inward, cocooning themselves behind a mass of vanity, personal rights and religiosity, and defensiveness. Obsession with self is the defining mark of a disintegrating soul. That's a haunting phrase. The obsession with self is the defining mark of a, a soul that is disintegrating. And I wonder if there's people here this, this, this evening who have a soul that is disintegrating. That you may not be able to say, yeah, I've, I've removed God from the center of my life and I've put myself in the, in the middle. But maybe as you look at your own faith and you realize your faith isn't vibrant, it's decaying. Your spirit isn't alive, it's falling apart. 
It's because we put the wrong thing at the center. And the reason why our life is falling apart and the reason why we're experiencing the things that we are inside of us is because we have the wrong thing at the center. We try to grab onto life by putting us at the center, but when we grab onto life, we actually lose the very thing that we're trying to grab onto. James Smith says, it is a terrible and a terrifying thing to know what you want to be and then realize you're the only one standing in your way. To want with every fiber of your soul to be someone different, to escape the you you've made of yourself, only to fall back into the self you hate over and over and over again. After the thrill of independence and experiments in self-actualization, drinking your so-called potential for being to the dregs, when the exhaustion starts to set in and then eventually morphs into a kind of self-disgust, you can reach a point where you know you want a different life but are enchained to the one you've made, enslaved to the one you've made. We can't figure out how to get out because there's been portions of our life that have been all about us. We wonder why we're in the predicament that we're in. The reason why we're enslaved, enchained, the disintegrating of our soul is because we've placed ourselves at the center. And this is why we need Good Friday. It's because we have all fallen into sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what is sin? It's putting ourselves at the center instead of God. This is why we need Good Friday. And there might be some people here this evening who have said, yes, I have put myself at the center. What do I need to do? What's the response? Before we get to the response, we need to hear what Good Friday is all about. And what Good Friday is all about comes from the words of Jesus. In verse 34 on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What is Good Friday? It's forgiveness. It's the forgiveness of Jesus because of his extravagant love for us. He died on the cross for us. He forgave us our sins. Jesus on the cross. It could be said that the rest of the Gospels is commentary on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Everything pivots on the cross and the resurrection. And what happens on the cross is forgiveness. And when you look at forgiveness on the cross, you could look at a lot of images and a lot of motifs. But forgiveness is possible because of what is happening on the cross. What is happening on the cross? First, you have a ransom. A ransom says that because I have sinned, I owe, I have a debt. And I cannot pay that debt. But Jesus, because of extravagant love for us, he was able to pay for something for me that I could not pay for myself. Ransom. Second, it means a substitution. That he who had no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Substitution. Because the concept of substitution, John Stott says, the concept of substitution could play both within sin and salvation. Because substitution within sin is saying my, myself in the place of God. But what salvation says is God in my place. Sin is me for God. Salvation is God for me. Salvation said that God is going into the place and, and into the cross, the, the very death and the suffering and the persecution that I, I should go through, but, Je, but Jesus does it for me, substitution. Number three, propitiation. Propitiation is the satisfaction for God's wrath. Because we have sinned, God's wrath is now upon us. Ephesians chapter two, verse three says that we are children of wrath. 
But because of Jesus' death on the cross, him taking our sin, now the wrath of the Father now comes upon the Son so that we are no longer children of wrath. We are children of God. That's a sweet doctrine. Propitiation. Number four, victory. Christus victor, that on the cross, Jesus conquered sin, death, and hell. Victory. Number five, it means the ultimate sacrifice, a new relationship with God because we now have a new covenant with him. Six, it means a new humanity, that we are no longer coming together based upon an ethnicity like it was in the Old Testament. We're coming together based upon, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of, regardless of ethnicity, we come together as a new humanity, a new family under the blood of Jesus. And number seven, we have a new identity because we are now new creations in Christ Jesus. And all of that took place on the cross. And all of that falls under the words forgiveness. This is what the cross is and does for us. This is why Good Friday is so important. That yes, we have put ourselves at the center. But Jesus, in his love, has cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, I would say that most struggle, not with the concept of understanding the cross. I would say most people struggle with receiving the message from the cross, which is the message of forgiveness. Because oftentimes I think we imagine God up there in heaven with his hands clenched around mercy and that we have to somehow pry his fingers off of mercy so that we can receive it. And that's not the image here in Scripture. The image here in Scripture is that from the cross, Jesus is pouring out mercy and grace upon his people. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mother, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. You know, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, he continues to drop these words of blessing and mercy and grace from the cross. But the issue for us is that we have to have the right heart and posture to receive these words, to receive the gift that he has given us. So what does it mean to know how to respond? To respond to the message that Jesus gives us from the cross? How do we respond? It's found in verses 40 through 43. And this is through the voice of the second criminal. But the second criminal rebuked the first criminal. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, and we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. How do we respond? Three ways. First is we are called to behold, to behold him. Notice what the criminal does. He speaks to Jesus. Now, we don't know if the criminal turned his face towards Jesus, but we do know that his attention shifts from all of the things that are going on with the crowds and the soldiers and the religious leaders that are mocking him. And he turns his attention to Jesus, and he addresses Jesus by calling out his name. He beholds the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He beholds Jesus. And that's the first thing. Have we beheld Jesus? Have we gazed upon his person, what he's done for us? Have we gazed upon him? Have we beheld the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Rembrandt in his painting, Raising of Christ, here it is. I love this. Rembrandt always paints himself into every picture that he paints. He's the one with the beret. Now, that wasn't a part of first century. Uh, 
But the Dutch painter paints himself into the portrait. And notice where his eyes are. They are either looking at his feet or they are looking up towards his body. But regardless of where his eyes are, he's looking at Jesus. And I want to keep that up just for a few minutes. He's fixing his eyes on the lamb who was slain to forgive us, to redeem us. He's fixing his eyes on Christ. We will be filled with whatever we turn our attention to. William James says, we must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to. What are you paying attention to? The thief in his dying moments pays attention to Jesus, beholds the lamb, and he's filled with mercy. He's filled with grace. Actually, he's filled with eternal life. What are you beholding? Because your life will reflect whatever you are, what your attention is turned towards. Are we beholding the lamb who was slain? And are we being filled up with his mercy, his grace, his love, and his truth? First, we have to behold the lamb. Second, we need to confess our sin. He acknowledged plainly that we are receiving the consequence of our sins. But this man has done nothing wrong. He confesses his need. He confesses his sins. And again, notice Rembrandt paints himself into his picture, acknowledging that he is the one because of his sin that put Christ on the cross. So what are the things that you need to confess here this evening? What are the things that are holding you back? What are the things that you need to give to the Lord? Maybe the Holy Spirit will begin to show you even now. Is it unfaithfulness? Is it disobedience? Pride, vanity, hypocrisy, self-pity, impatience, envy, unrighteous anger, resentment, bitterness, sexual impurity, lies, slander, exploitation of others, self-indulgent appetites, intemperate pursuit of worldly goods and comforts, dishonesty in daily life and work, ingratitude, failure to heed the call that God has placed on your life. Blindness to human need or suffering, indifference to injustice, lack of concern for the next generation, false judgments, prejudice, contempt of others, uncharitable thoughts toward our neighbor, negligence in prayer and worship, abuse of God's grace. What are the things that you need to confess to the Lord here this evening? Not for the purpose... Not for the purpose of saying, you just stink, you need to try harder. That's not the point here. The point is, is that we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that we recognize that we have done things that we shouldn't have done, that have separated us from God's mercy and grace. And as we confess those things, we receive more of his grace, more of his mercy, and that's what God wants to give us here this evening, which leads to the third thing. We need to receive his grace. Notice in verse 43, Jesus turns to him and he says, "'Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise.'" When we think of this passage, oftentimes the focus is on paradise, but that's not the operative phrase here. The operative phrase is with me. Jesus is inviting the second criminal, union with Christ, salvation. What is true of Jesus will now be true of the criminal. That God's grace will be his grace. God's mercy, his mercy. God's truth, his truth. God's freedom, 
his freedom. God's joy, his joy. God's peace, goodness, righteousness. The criminal's goodness, peace, and righteousness. God's life, the criminal's life. He has now been united to Christ and he's received his grace. That's what it's about, receiving his grace. As I was praying about this time, the scripture that came to mind was from second, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul says, I come to you, not with wise or persuasive words, but with demonstrations of the Spirit's power. And while I pray for tonight, for the demonstration of the Spirit's power, for signs, wonders, and miracles, absolutely. But maybe what the demonstration of the Spirit's power here this evening is for those maybe who have come in here who have had their hearts closed off, maybe a disintegrating soul, a faith that's decaying, and what the Holy Spirit will do to you is open up your heart to receive the fullness of God's grace, his mercy, his love, and his life. That's the invitation for us this evening, to receive all that the Holy Spirit has for us as we gaze upon Christ. Behold the Lamb who is slain, who takes away the sin of the world. Confess our sin and receive his grace. We're going to go into a time where there's going to be some songs, worship songs that are being sung. I would ask you just to contemplate, to ask the Lord, how is he inviting you to behold him? What are the things that you need to confess? And how is he asking you to receive his grace? Also know there's going to be prayer ministers in the back who would love to pray for you during this time. They're going to be back there now. So if there's any request or something that you need just to go before somebody and say, this is a burden that's upon my heart, I encourage you to go back there and receive prayer. But let's allow during this moment the Holy Spirit to do his work as we turn our eyes to Jesus, confess our sin, and receive the grace that he has for us this evening.